Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. So let me paint you a picture. Recently, I heard this song again, and I love this song. Everybody does. One of the most famous duets in rock history, Don't Go Breaking My Heart. It reaches number one in 1976, basically all over the world. And it occurred to me that I don't really know that much about Kiki D. I mean, I have some of her music and I love it, but I couldn't tell you what the Kiki D story is. And I think that might be true for a lot of American audiences. We primarily know this song and then maybe that's it. And so I thought, I wonder if I tracked her down, if she'd be willing to talk to me. And I lucked out, she was. So this week we get to hear from Kiki D. Now, what you may not know is that Kiki has been going strong for almost 55 years. There's really never been a a pause or a gap in her musical career. Sometimes that career is focused on her solo work. Sometimes she's just singing backup with people. Sometimes she's doing sort of the London version of Broadway, whatever it might be, but she's always been out there performing with vitality. And in fact, the last few years, she's been collaborating with a guy named Carmelo Lugieri, and they've put out a number of albums, including one from the last couple of years. So that's what Kiki's doing today. Her story obviously includes people like Elton John, Dusty Springfield early on, even Robert Plant makes an appearance in this story. So if you've ever wondered what the story of Kiki D is, this is it. And I was so glad that she talked to me. She called me from her home a couple hours outside of London. My focus is on the artists that we love, but we probably don't know very well. You know, mm. and how do those people kind of maintain careers? How do they pay their bills? How do they feel about the ups and downs of their career? Yeah, oh, well, that's interesting. I've, yeah, and I've always thought about you because, especially in America, everybody knows you from Don't Go Breaking My Heart, but they probably don't know or aren't as familiar with the fact that you've been around for almost 55 years. I mean, it's never I know, really ended. I know, it's scary, isn't it? I know, it's <laughs> It scary. is. It's ridiculous. <laughs> So I thought it would be a really interesting story to tell, and that's why. And so I'm so glad that you that you agreed to do it because I just I wanted to honor you and and hear your story. Okay. Yeah, I mean the the, the thing to do, you know, especially at my age at this point, is is to not prepare too much really, just have a chat because I think <laughs> yeah, I think I think listeners are much more interested in who you are than what you've done actually. I agree. I I think that's very true. It's kind of like when you watch a really, really old movie star on a talk show. And they hardly say anything, but it's so fascinating to get behind who they are, you know. That is so true. You know, sometimes, I'll be honest, I've interviewed some people that aren't particularly interesting, or they they talk too much, or maybe they're too shy. And I always feel bad for them, but then I think, well, this is the way people know this is what this person's personality is, you know. Well, exactly. That's who they are. So. Well, exactly, and I think you know we've we've all done the kind of when you know when you're young, you have to make you have to try very hard to make it in the industry. So yeah. you do compromise you who you are a bit, and you don't really know who you are in it when you're young anyway. But the good news yeah. about getting older is at least you know who you are. <laughs> That's great. Finally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so I want to ask you something. I read an article, and you mentioned something in this article that I thought was really fascinating. You had said that if you were to ever write your autobiography, you would call it three telephone calls. Because yeah, I guess something on that clear. line, wasn't it? Telephone calls, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah no, that's interesting. Calls. Well, I'll tell you, well, two, I think it might have been, actually. Oh, was it two? Okay, I thought it was three. Let me just think for a second now. There's the, the Fontana, then there's Motown. No, there is three. There is three, oh. you're right. Good. You got, oh, it good. Right. got it right. Yes, got it right. I did my homework. <laughs> you did well. You no, know, what it is is. Do you want me to tell you what what what? Yes, the three please. Phone- yeah, let's hear them. Okay, the three phone calls. Well, the first one was when I was sixteen and uh, left school. Just left school at fifteen, actually. I left school, believe it or mm. not, in the UK. And uh, I was singing, uh, already singing quite seriously, and I was singing with a dance band fairly locally. And somebody heard me and sent a recording to to London to a record company. And I got the phone call to say that I was, you know, would I like to do an audition for a record mm-hmm. company? And I got signed, you know, at 16. Uh, that's got to be amazing. So that it was pretty crazy. My dad took me down to London in, in the uh, early 60s. You can imagine 
And yeah. the Beatles and, and the Stones were just happening. It was around 63 when I signed. So Goodness. it was a, a ridiculous time to go to London. It was just outrageous, you know. And uh, I was from the north of England. To, at that time, it used to take five hours on the train to get to London. <laughs> so it was like going to another planet, you know. Sure. Very yeah. liberating, actually. Um, well, you were so young. I mean, did you even really, you know, I, one thing I like to talk about with my guests are these transitions in their life. And so many of them, you know, they're slogging away out there somewhere trying to make a make it happen. And then finally it does. And sometimes they're in their 20s or 30s. But you're 16 years old. You probably don't know. Maybe you felt like you had paid your dues. Was this kind of, were you even old enough or mature enough to take in what the magical thing was happening to you? Well, I think I was, but I know I also had that the the thing that you have when you when you're young is you're very open and and mm. stuff happens and I, I wasn't wowed over too much if you know what I mean. I was very mm-hmm. excited to be in the big city for one thing, you know. Sure. Uh, but I I I think I just always had this I call it my inner belief and I think it's it's got to be so inside you that I, I was going to make it in some way or other in music. And it's just a kind of force that you can't really explain. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the same with actors and, and painters. And, oh, I believe it. You know, if you've got that kind of, I am going to do this, it's, it's not a yeah. kind of arrogance. It's just a kind of knowledge. <laughs> yeah. So I, I had a bit of that going on. creative people. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I thought, yeah, I'm going to do it. And it took me 10 years, actually, to get a hit record. Mm. So I slogged yeah. away for 10 years, you know, and learned, you, learned my trade. When you were signed and you went down to London, did you, did you relocate or were you still going back up living with your folks in the north? I of didn't Minnesota, locate for a couple of years, um, okay. Okay. but I did eventually. Okay. I had a little flat I rented in London. But right from the, the very beginning of my career, I was... Uh, do, the first one of the first exciting things I did was sing backing vocals for Dusty Springfield. I know. How uh, was yeah, that? Yeah, that was pretty. Because I got signed. The re- the record company um, found a manager for me, an artist manager. And two weeks after he signed me, when I was sixteen, seventeen, he signed Dusty, and who was already very, very quite a star over here, you know, in the oh, UK. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, she was. She'd been in a group called the Springfields. With her brother and another guy, and uh, so she—I was quite starstruck, you know, when I met her. And uh, yeah, so that was that was an amazing uh, beginning. We did a we did a lovely version of a Carole King song called "Some of Your Loving." One of the great UK pop voices, actually. Oh, absolutely, of all time. Yeah. Uh, And not even just UK. I mean, that voice is one of the best ever. The only reason I said UK was I didn't know, actually, at the moment, how big she was in America. I know know she did well in America, and she did the Memphis Mm -hmm. album eventually, didn't she? Yeah. I don't know that it ever crossed out, crossed over until the Memphis album. She did, yeah. you're probably right. She probably remained more of a UK phenomenon. So I wasn't really sure then, especially as I hadn't been to America, really, what, you know, how big a star, so that's why I was saying UK, really. But, yeah, okay, interesting. okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
what's she what's she like to work with? I mean, I'm sure you're probably only going to tell us amazing stories, but is she, you know, was she a taskmaster? Was she easy to get along with? You guys have similar voices. I wonder if you bonded over that. Well, kind of. The thing about Dusty is she's got that thing where as soon as you hear the voice, you know exactly who it is. Yep. Yeah. And all the big stars are like that, if you think about mm-hmm. it. You know, you only have to hear about four lines, well, one line of a song, and you know exactly who it is. Mm-hmm. So she had that unique quality, beautiful voice. And she was she was a little bit older than me, and I was so young. I was completely starstruck uh, and very happy to be singing and getting the experience I got of working with her because she was one of the first female singers who knew what she wanted. Yeah. You know, um, and she stood up for it. She was a very, very sensitive woman and, you know, had problems later on in her life, but was what I call a diva in a good way. Mm-hmm. You know, she had real star quality in that sense. Yeah, but, definitely. Yeah, she was very special. Now, when your uh, your first single comes out, Early Night. I adored the music and all the starting to think this is the realization of my dreams coming true is it a big moment for you i don't i mean being in the u.s and being younger i don't know whether that single really took off how did that impact your life well the thing was that you know when i first got there i thought this is it you know this is going to be uh-huh. it i'm going to i'm going to be yeah. a star now i'm going to be <laughs> i'm going to have a singing career you know right. little knowing that i'd have to spend 10 years before i actually i got yeah. that big recognition from the public you know, the validation of a hit record, which nowadays it doesn't, it's not important to me, but then starting out in the music business in the, in the early 60s, everybody in this kind of pop area wanted to get a hit record, you know. Mm. And so, yeah, I was a bit disappointed when it didn't happen straight away. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. But again, I had that, what the inner belief thing, and I just kept going. And, and when you're sure. young, you've got nothing to lose, have you? Yeah, no, you don't. We know that now, you know, some of us, you get older and you're kind of, you got kids and you got a job and you got a, boy, that moment of when I could have taken risks and really could have followed a passion or Mm. taken some chances is over, you know, forever. You don't really get to do it as much anymore. So I admire the people like you that knew, had the wherewithal to know what you were doing when you were young enough and doing it. That's really amazing. Well, it's good for people to know that, you know, that, um, you know, in a way, I've had a really interesting life, mm-hmm. you know, and it's been, and I'm a, I'm a naturally happy person, quite Good. stable, but I haven't had what I would call a rounded life. I haven't had, I haven't ever married, and I haven't had children. I think I've just always been, it, it just didn't happen. And so uh-huh. sometimes people think the grass is greener, you know. They think, oh well, if I'd only done that, or if I'd done X, Y, Z, you know. But, you know, I think, you know, whatever whatever your journey, I think you've just got to remain happy with it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, totally. Absolutely. You know. I mean, I know um, you need to be pretty mature to say that, I realize. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the thing. I mean, that, and that's something that comes up a lot with these interviews that I do is 
and why I ask, because your hindsight is 2020. I mean, now we've got the maturity to know where the things that seemed like disappointments at the time really turned out for the best or didn't turn out to be such a big deal, you know, because we, we made it, we're here. That's it. And I mean, some of the things that go wrong uh, uh, go wrong for the right reasons, don't they? You know, they're mm-hmm. not meant to be. Then yeah. It wasn't the right time or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I'm I being agree. positive. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're doing well. So tell me I know, about Motown. I know. <laughs> tell me about Motown. How does how does Motown come around? Well, that was the number two phone call. You know, I've been doing, I've been singing and, and working in the UK and doing cabaret and, and all sorts of things in the 60s. Uh, all sorts of interesting little things. I did a lot of BVs, you know, in the 60s. I did. Mm-hmm. I met Robert Plant a couple of years ago. Oh, he came wow. to one of my acoustic gigs, and he said, "You know, oh. you sang." He said, "You sang on one of my records in 1965." And I said, "Did I?" <laughs> and it was called "You Better Run." If anybody's wow. out there is interested, to check it out. We'll try you better it. run. Yours. Now I'm closing all the doors What you trying to do to my heart? You better run You better She trying to do to my soul Every time I see your face See you in another place What you trying to do to my soul Yeah You better run Run baby You better run Hi girl You better leave Leave me now Two other girls worked with me on it but. So I did lots of th- amazing things actually but Kind of behind the scenes, you know, for other people. Yeah. But then one day yeah. um, uh, in 69, I got a phone call uh, in London. My manager got a phone call saying that, um, you know, uh, in Motown, had, they were looking for someone from Europe to, I think UK, Europe, to sign, mm-hmm. to do some recording. And um, somebody's son in the admin side, because mm. the company was changing quite a lot in the late 60s, it was going a little bit more corporate. Anyway, someone said, you know, that we're interested in Kiki D and we'd like to fly her over and do some recording. And I, I thought, you're winding me up. I thought it was a wind-up, you know. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> I said, nah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I did. I went over there in, in 69 and I, I, I had an album out on Tama Motown. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Which now, is crazy. That is, that is crazy. Now, oh, no. so I had, uh, about a year ago, I spoke with a guy named Peter McCann. And I don't know if that name rings a bell. In the 70s, around the same time as Don't Go Breaking My Heart, he yeah. had one big hit called Do You Want to Make Love or Do You Just Want to Fool Around? I don't know if that, saw, if that even rings it a bell. It doesn't ring any bells, but then that doesn't mean a lot because I haven't got okay. the greatest memory. Sure. So in the early 70s, him and his other white friends, were in a band called The Repairs, and they were managed by Andrew Luke Oldham. Oh, and yeah. Motown, yeah, and Motown signed them as well. This would have been a couple of years after you. And yeah. in our conversation, he was saying that, you know, as cool as it was to say you were on Motown, they didn't really know yet what to do with a white artist. They, were so, they, they wanted to break out and branch out and other things, but they really weren't equipped to quite get there or do it. And maybe they just didn't think the repairs music was good enough for them. Did you have a similar experience? Did you feel like they they were handling you well? You know what's interesting is I only went for 12 weeks. Oh. At that time what they, what, what I did I did about four original recordings done for me. Uh-huh. It was a fast, an interesting arrangement of all for once in my life. For once in my life I have someone I can 
My favourite of the four that they recorded just for me was The Day Will Come Between Sunday and Monday, which is a great little track. The tracks were actually tracks that other people on Motown had recorded, and they put different vocals. You know, they put mm. my vocals on those tracks. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it was a little bit mishmashy. You know, of course, with Motown, you, you know, they had a lot of great artists, but it was a singles label in the 60s, yeah, and you had to get the hit song, whether you were Martha mm-hmm. Reeves or whether you were Diana Ross or whoever you were. You had to be in the place where, you know, after 12 weeks, I wasn't going to get the hit song. If that makes right. sense. Okay. So, mm. I, so I don't feel any any bitterness about it. It was just an sure. amazing experience to go over there yeah. and do it. You know. Yeah. And you were in Detroit. You play. You performed or sang in that little Hitsville, USA. I did. House. My producer was Frank oh, Wilson, who, who had a record out on Motown originally. Oh wow. And uh, yeah, and he was a lovely guy, and and everybody was so nice. And they were just about when I was leaving, they'd all kind of got to know me a bit because I think I was uh-huh. just flown over with not a lot of preparation. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So it was obviously at the time it was disappointing, but yeah, you know, in hindsight, I think I did a pretty good job for a twenty-one-year-old. You know. You sure did. Yeah, you sure did. You know. Cool. Okay. Yeah. And then somewhere around here, Rocket Records happens. And yeah, that Rocket was the Records third phone call. John's. Yeah. This is the, this is the third. Yeah, on Elton John's label, Rocket, yeah. What happened was, when the Motown thing didn't really materialize the way I I imagined it might, some good came out of it, because I met a young man called John Reed, uh, who in London was label manager for Tamla Motown. He was 19 years old, and he was at EMI Records, because Motown was going through them at the time. And after the Motown thing didn't really fly... I rang John about a couple of years later just to say, how are you and what are you up to? And I'm not really quite sure how to move forward, you know, mm-hmm. where to take mm-hmm. it now. It was the early 70s. And he said, well, I've just uh, signed a, uh, an artist for management called Elton John, and we're, we're going to start a record label. Are you interested? Oh, man. So, you know, it, it's very interesting, isn't it? If I hadn't made that yeah. phone call. Oh, well, yeah. maybe I wouldn't even have met them, you know, and uh, sure. things would have gone in a different direction, you know. Yeah. Now, one thing I've noticed, or I, I'm, 
again, I'm an outsider. I'm young. I'm from the States, so I'm not, mm. I don't know all the, the history perfectly, but yeah, it seems like from an outsider's perspective that in some ways your career has some stops and starts. Stop, start. Uh, yes. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Up to this point, now you're on Rocket and you're associated with Elton John, and he's one of the biggest singers in the world around this time. Does it ever get to be a point where you're like, you know, you can you've uh, you got a big enough advance, or you're making enough royalties where you can go buy yourself a nice new car, or you can indulge in a nice vacation? Do you notice your life change from what it was to something much bigger, something more akin to something like a star would have? Does that moment ever happen for you? Well, I think that happened with Elton, definitely. You know, I didn't make, I've never made the big bucks, and uh, right. ironically, I'm more secure now financially, oh, good. you know, than I was then. And, you know, the Stones were like that. They never made any money mm -hmm. till the 70s. Everybody was ripping everybody mm -hmm. off, you know, in those yeah. days in, yeah. in the music business, you know. What I got from Elton was we were born the same year, and I'm, I'm, th I'm mm -hmm. two weeks older than him, actually. And so we had a sort of connection. I don't know what it was, but he knew of my career and knew, knew of my before he, you know, made it, really. He was the person who said, look, you should try writing. He, mm -hmm. he introduced me to people like Jackson Brown, sent me their albums, Joni Mitchell, or, you know, the L.A. early 70s mm -hmm. music scene. Yeah, yeah. The songwriters. So thanks, Elton, for mm -hmm. getting me to write, you know. It's been quite a big part of my life, actually, my writing, sure. you know. So, Do you find yeah. it as being something, is it work or is it a relief? How do you when you write? Do you still write now, or are you content to kind of? I do, yeah. I still write. Uh, I haven't, I haven't okay. been very creative writing-wise for a while, but um, yeah, no, I, I, I've, yeah, I love it. It's, it's a real puzzle, you know. Yeah, yeah. To try and write it's something intelligent. Well to try and write something intelligent that <laughs> rings a bell and that, that what I like actually is I'm a bit of a performer actually, mm. and uh, I like connection. And if you've written a, a lyric and it connects to people in a room, you know, when you're playing it live, there's something yeah. about that that's very magical, you know. I can't imagine anything better. Uh, I'm, I'm envious of people that can do that. Well, there's one song that I, uh, I'm, uh, there's a few songs I'm proud of, but there's a song. We have a program in the UK called Desert Island Discs where. Oh, I, I listen every week. Yeah, well, we, the week. celebrities yeah. pick uh, uh -huh. tracks and. Keith Richard did it about a year ago, and he picked one of my songs, <laughs> sung by, by Etta James, yeah. And, and I was really chuffed, you know. It was called Sugar on the Floor, the song. You're a stranger to me Then you give me your life I toss it to one side Still you're sweeter to me when will I be sure? Mm, it's warm where you are, but my lips just don't burn. I feel so insecure when you try to be kind. Could I ask? more I feel like sugar on the floor feel like sugar on the floor feel like sugar on the floor I helped produce me doing that song when I wrote it yeah. in the 70s and, yeah, uh, it became one of Etta James' big songs, so I was very proud of that, you know. That's amazing. I know. It's so cool, isn't wow. it? Wow. It really is. Yeah, it's really yeah. cool. One but I think for me, generally speaking, as we're having a chat, really, aren't we, I think when I look back, I think I'm a little bit envious of people who've got one identity uh, as as a singer, as a writer, in that, say, you know, if you're a folk singer or if you're a jazz singer, if you're a rock singer, pop singer, whatever it is, you you know, if you're in one area, I kind of envy that to a certain extent. You know, I often, someone once said to me, um, 
you know, if you've been born in the northwest of Ireland and you hadn't left Ireland till, till you know, till you were 20, and your dad had been a folk guitarist or something, you might have been a folk singer, and that yeah. might have been what you did with your life, you know. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's a very nice thing in some ways, but I've had sort of dipped my my feet in lots of different tubs of water, if you like. <laughs> yeah. And tried Boy, so many tell. different things, you know, and uh, yeah. so I've come to terms with that now, you know. Good. Okay, so early on, before Don't Go Breaking My Heart, you have a huge hit with I've Got the Music in Me, which is one of my favorite songs ever. Something is about to break through. Again, going back to how life changes in these transitions, did you notice a change in your life at that point, or was it happening sort of outside of you? I mean, I, I really enjoyed the success. Um, uh-huh. I had, I had in '73, Elton produced an, uh, a song called Amoureuse, which is French for mm-hmm. loving. Had a big hit Very in England with that. Strands of light upon a bedroom floor Change the night through an open door I'm awake but this is not my home For the first time I'm not Then I had I've got the music in the following year produced by Elton. Oh, I thought they were the Dash other way Dungeon. around. Yeah, okay. so I I was glad to get two hits under my belt before I yeah. I did Don't Go Breaking My Heart really, but um, I think that I was just enjoying the fruits of all my labour and the recognition that I was getting mm-hmm. as a singer. Sure. You know, sure. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed it, and the fact that I toured America supporting Elton a couple of times. Well, I think I'm sure that's why I've got music in me charted because we did a ten week tour of America that year. Nice. And uh we you know, Kiki D band supported and we got we got a lot of exposure with, for that song. And I yeah. think that's why I think that's why it charted over there. You know, it's got great. It. Okay. Yeah. Was there ever I mean you talk about I was looking, I think you've only really had two hits in the States, whereas in the UK you've had like nine or ten. Was there ever was that ever a disappointment? Did you ever try to break the stage, or were you okay just being a UK focused act? Well, I suppose I was okay with it. You know, um, 
you know, after Don't Go Breaking My Heart, you know, mm-hmm. such a big record, unexpectedly, that I guess in a way that was the point where I started to, to sort of question where am I going musically? Because every hit I'd had was so different from it. They're all different from each other. And I thought, well, you know, I started to question where I was going musically at that point after that, you know, because it, it was such a big record, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it sure was. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. So, yeah. So, okay. Well, let's talk about the video. I don't, not, not, you know, it's not a, an official MTV produced video, but the clip of you and Elton singing that song around the microphone. Yeah, it's had crazy. The, there's no way 41 years ago or whenever that was that you would be thinking that years from now, millions of people are going to continuously be watching this thing over and over and over again for the rest of my life, right? Crazy. I mean, we did that video in about half an hour for a TV show over here in the UK. And uh, it was because it was it was before videos. No one was spending, uh-huh. you know, hundred thousand dollars on a, on a video in those days. Yeah. No one was spending anything on videos. So, but it became a, t- a promotion tool, didn't it? But in the yeah, I mean, it was just done for a telly, and uh, <laughs> it's probably just as well I didn't realize, or I might not have worn those dungarees, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've been watching it lately, knowing I was going to talk to you. You look great. <laughs> I mean, you're so cute. And he he's so funny, and it's just such a piece of history, you know? And, uh, his first stand-up performance without the piano. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, my cute. gosh. Well, it had yeah. a, he's had a sort of thing about it. And, you know, it, I mean, it wasn't particularly cool or anything, but it, right. was, it, was, it, was, it was sweet, wasn't it? It was nice. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I yeah. love that song and that video and everything about it. It's so good. Yeah. You've got a number one song. I... Now, so one thing we talk about in here, as you know, very sensitively, is the money side. And you mentioned earlier that your finances are actually in better shape now than they have been for a long time. I don't even know. I know you didn't write that song, but can you? Could you live off just "Don't Go Breaking My Heart" money for the rest of your life? Well, I did for a bit. You know, it was. It's always lovely okay. when a check comes in. You know, cause especially when sure. you don't know when you're going to. When you don't know when you're going to work again, you know, which has always been the case. I'm, when am I working? Yeah. Two months, three months, you know. So they were always not. I haven't had any for ages for that song, actually. You need to put another best of out, I think, so yeah, I can make some more money to live on, you know. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> no, it, it, did pay, it did pay a lot of bills over the years. No, over the years, it spread out, you know, and... If yeah. Elton had, a, if Elton put it on an album, obviously I'd get, I'd get this, I'd get what they call the performance royalty, mm-hmm. rather yep. than the writer's royalty. You know, yeah, yeah, get half of okay. the performance royalty. Yeah. Okay. Before I forget, geez, did I? I think I read somewhere that Dusty Springfield had turned that down, and then you kind of stepped in. Is that right? No, I think there's been some funny press around about Dusty and I at the moment because. Oh. Uh, there, there's a musical coming out in London about Dusty's life, mm. and apparently I'm one of the characters in it. I have no idea what it's like. You know, I'm Kiki yeah. and she's Dusty. So, okay. and there's some controversy about whether or not she wanted to do Don't Go Break My Heart. And I think it's, to be honest with you, I think it's all promotion-led. I don't know where it's come from, mm. and uh, it's, there's no truth okay. in it at all. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I know yeah. I'm a huge fan of. Elton was a huge fan of Dusty. Oh, um, I can imagine. But, you know, by the time we did that single, I'd been working with him for three years, and he'd been, he produced an album for me. And, and you know, I, I would have known if, if if Dusty wanted to do it, you know. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. I mean, it makes yeah, sense I think it's for him just to go to one to of with, his own artists. Yeah, no, I think it was to do with this show that's coming out. So. Okay, okay. Just curious. No, I was curious the other day when I got the phone call and I said, there is no comment to this. Thank you very much for inquiring. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you expanding a little bit for us. I thought that was really interesting <laughs> trivia. I mean, I'm not going to start <laughs> defending myself or, no. you know, because they can so much, you know, you know, it's like they can interpret what you've said, can't they, so easily. Uh, yeah. You, know, you have to oh, keep yeah. your mouth shut sometimes. So in the, in the wake of Don't Go Breaking My Heart, did you, um, and again, being in the States and being younger and you being primarily in the UK, was it was was the wave big enough to kind of keep you afloat for the next few years? I mean, was, 
did it really usher in a second another phase of your career or was it was the impact less so i mean i don't know really what the fallout was are you satisfied with where things went after this giant hit well the thing is no not particularly i mean i did do elton produced the the, the album that came out in 1670 mm-hmm. after that a hit and then I yeah. did an album in L.A. with a producer, uh, engineer called Bill Schnee, who was a, a phenomenal engineer at the time. And uh, I did things like Stay With Me Baby. Where did he go When things went LA musicians, you know, mm-hmm. on that album. So, and I didn't have huge, huge success with them, but they did. They always did okay, my albums. But you know, I think it was that was those two albums that came after uh, "Don't Go Breaking My Heart" were were great to make. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you've had a big single like that on a pop record, it's you know, again, it was the identity of the albums. I think that you know, you have to come out with stuff that people expect you to do after a hit like that. Yeah. And yeah. I was still doing like really off the off the wall things, you know, very different albums. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of just going for it, doing what I fancied doing, you know, which is the story yeah. of my life really. <laughs> well, you know, you say that and I'm thinking at the time that may have been confusing for a record label or, you know, they don't know how to market this, but now exactly. someone yeah. coming to see you live now is getting a little bit of everything. I mean, that would be the ideal situation. Well, that, that's what they get in my... Well, we haven't got there yet, but to my, the show I do now, you know, the semi-acoustic show I do now has got... It's so packed with everything. Oh, good. From, from yeah, Don't Go Breaking... That's what you want. Down, well, a slowed-down version of Don't Go Breaking My Heart, you know, like a, ah. an acoustic version to, you know, How Sweet It Is To Be Loved By You, to uh, Joni Mitchell songs, Kate Bush songs... Frank Sinatra yes. songs. It just covers everything, you know. Um, yeah. What's great about acoustic shows is you can get away with a smaller lineup mm-hmm. because every, everything com- comes under the acoustic umbrella, so the material yeah. doesn't sound ridiculous altogether. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Sure, yeah, it does. If you had a four-piece pop band and you tried to do such an eclectic mix of material, it might sound a little bit strange, you know. Yeah. But it does yeah, work under the umbrella. Yeah. Okay. Now, in the 80s, you kind of move into a little bit of Broadway, West End, whatever they call it over there. It's Broadway yeah, West End Theater, theater darling. Yeah, there you go, <laughs> theater. Sorry. Yeah, yes, yeah. the posh accent, that's it. That's so the one. at that point, are you thinking, I mean, you've done so many things, like we've been talking about, is where do you prefer to be? Do you like to be the one up front? Do you prefer to be on the stage uh, doing theater? Do you prefer to be backing vocals, supporting someone else? Where mm. are you most comfortable? That's a very good question, actually. Um, the thing was, I mean, this is going to sound really basic, but I've always been what I call a working artist, and I've always needed to work in order to, you know, like people do, to live and, you know, live a decent lifestyle. Yeah. And I haven't never, I've never married, so I haven't married any rich men or anything like that. <laughs> right. So, you know, I've always been, you know, when, when theatre came along, I thought it might be really good for me after touring a lot, and to, to do something ensemble, you know, I thought it might be really good. And it, I did two shows in the 80s. I did one American show called Pump Boys and Dinettes in the West End of London. And then later in the 80s, I did a show called Blood Brothers, which was 
very, very popular in the UK. I don't know if it's... I know it went to Broadway and people like Pat Clark did the role I did and so oh, did nice. uh, Carol King did my role too. So, yeah, so um, musical theatre was, was such a different journey. You were as good as the show you did the night before, mm-hmm. you know, and it wasn't about getting the hit record and yeah. it was it was a different kind of pressure and I kind of enjoyed the working with, with with actors. I love actors. I think they're so clever. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, I, know, I, mean, I, I mean, I've never done any real acting, camera acting, which I'd like to kind of like to have done, but it never really kind of happened that way, you know. I'd get, oh, too well, bad. I'd get offered sort of things like, they have shows, you know, like the detective shows here, and they they say, will you come and play a heroine, you know, suffering rock star? And, you know, yeah. I thought, no, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Right. <laughs> We've got 10 minutes to learn it and 10 minutes to, to do it. Because, you know, right. the thing is, it takes experience to film very quickly as an actor, I think. Sure. And if you oh, don't yeah. have acting experience, uh, camera acting, I mean, it's very... I didn't want to make an idiot of myself, you know, so I, oh. I, always, turn, oh. I always turn those things down, you know. But musical yeah. theatre, of course, is a different sort of acting, isn't it? It's bigger. Sure. Oh, you yeah. Know, you have to spread yourself out to the bigger audience, you know. But Yeah. Yeah, it was and great. I mean. That. I did, and I loved, particularly Brothers, because I did, I did nearly a thousand performances, you know. Goodness. And uh, I got to sleep in my own bed in, in London. I was living in London at the time. Oh, so nice. Get on, the, on the subway to work every day and be an actor, you know, yeah. be an actor singer. You know, it was great. Where are you now? Where, do you, where am I calling you from now? I am now, I've been watching Wimbledon, you know, the famous uh, oh. tennis, uh, yeah, that's been on today. Uh-huh. We've had beautiful weather in the UK, which is unusual for okay. us. We usually get rubbish weather. I'm in, yeah. I'm in a village, beautiful village, a very English village with thatched cottages, which is about an hour and a quarter drive from London. Okay, yeah. okay. North. Um, that's okay. where I am. I, good. I, uh, I always try to throw in where where my guests are calling from. Just so yeah, no, it's lovely. I, I really enjoy living in this village. Um, Good. It, it's about 2,000 people in the village, and, and you, you, know, you, you don't get bothered, and it, it's lovely. Okay. So I'm curious, you know, were there ever sort of, you know, were there ever sort of lean years? I mean, I know a lot's been said, that there, you know, you've basically been in the game for 55 years, almost. I mean, I've had, a lot of lean years. I've had a lot of lean years. Yeah, I have. Uh, oh, really? Well, did you I ever have to do anything outside of music? No, I've never. My music partner okay. today, you know, I've been working with him for over 20 years now. He said, you're amazing. You've only had one job, which is <laughs> I worked in a pharmacy, a chemist, you know, for 12 weeks when I left school. He said, how have you managed to do that <laughs> in the fickle music business? But, yeah, yeah. I've, had, I've had lean years, you know, in, you know, as far as where to go and what to do next and how to get work. Uh-huh. I've always managed to, you know, I've never lived out of my means. So I've always lived a normal life. So Good. It's, okay. it's, people do get into trouble when they spend money they haven't got, don't they? Yes. You know, and I feel yes. sorry for people who do that. Cause yeah. They think it's going on yeah. forever, you know, and it, it sometimes dries up, doesn't it? So tell me about Carmelo. I uh, I know that he's now Lugeri. Am I saying his last name right? Carmelo, Carmelo Lugeri. Jerry, okay. Very good. Because I yeah, know he's, he's been your primary musical partner for like for the last twenty years, and you guys yeah. put out a great album a couple of years ago. So what's the what's the nature of this partnership? Well, we we started work. We we both um, we're talking now ninety four. We've gone up to there, believe it or not. Oh, when wow. when we met, the guy actually that discovered Elton John, a guy called Steve Brown, he used to work at the publishing company Elton was with. And he found your song. He's been a lifelong friend of mine. Mm-hmm. He put us together and he, and he said, I think you should go out on the road and do some acoustic shows and start writing together. And we did, and we've stuck with it ever since. Oh, that's great. Wow. And, and I kind of got to that point where I thought, I'm not going to chase rainbows anymore. Yeah. I'm just going to make a living, do what I want to do, have the freedom creatively to, to do what I want to do. I've, yeah. I've done, you know, one particularly unusual album uh, with Carmela in the late 90s called Where Rivers Meet. The past is dead Who knows what tomorrow holds 
The past is dead forever So turn off the headlights Look at the stars Throw back your head Breathe in the Kiki D, this sort of thing, what? You know, what oh. kind of a name is that? 
but you know I've grown into it and uh, the good thing about it is it's it's there's no one else with a name like that so no quite, no quite good yeah that's a pretty perfect stage name I love it okay <laughs> now two other things number one I think I read a story somewhere about I believe it was the first time you were on top of the pops and you mm-hmm. were, you were performing Amarus and uh, Paul McCartney was on there and Marie Osmond was on there. And I think your did you fly your parents in or bring your parents in for this as well? Is there a story there, something impactful? Oh, well, no, it wasn't about Top of the Pops. The, the story, I'll give you a, a, a rundown of that story. Okay. When uh, Don't Go Breaking My Heart was number eight going up the American charts um, in 1976. I ran my mum and dad in Bradford, Yorkshire, because um, they'd never travelled, really. They'd never been out of the UK. Mm. And I said, why don't you and dad, to my mum on the phone, I tell this on stage, why don't you and dad fly first class to New York to see me at Madison Square Garden for seven yeah. nights with Don John, and stay at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel for seven nights, and then sail home on the QE2? What do you think? And there was a bit of a pause, and my mum said, oh, love, we would, but we'd just booked our caravan holiday that week. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh, that sounds great, but sorry, we have other plans. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, love. <laughs> but anyway, so they funny. did come in the end. We changed it all around, and they came over. And Good. At the time, I was, I was going out with uh, Elton's guitarist, Davey Johnston, who's a lifelong friend of mine. Davey and I were very, very close buddies. And um, Davy th- flew his parents out too. His dad was in a wheelchair. He's from Edinburgh, Scotland, mm. and they all they all came on the plane together. So it was a really magical time. Oh, that's the best. Oh, I love yeah, it. Lovely. That's a great story. Really lovely. Yeah. Okay. And then you got to tell me the John Lennon story. I think you had met. I again going. I'm reading somewhere that I think you had met John Lennon, but the only thing you could think to talk about were chip shops. Yeah, what happened was um, no. What happened was in '74, um, I was in New York again at Madison Square Garden with Elton. That was the the time that Elton had played on a track of of John's, and Elton said, "If this gets to number one, you have to come and play a song with me at Madison Square Garden." Mm-hmm. And John said, "All right, I will." And it went to number one, and John had to play, and he hadn't played live for a while, so he did the performance. And I remember the floor at Madison Square Garden was going up and down, you know, because it's a floating floor, isn't it? Because they mm-hmm. use it for sports and all sorts. So, yeah, and after the gig, which was great, John and his then-girlfriend, May Pang, came to visit Davy and I in the hotel and stayed the whole night. Oh, and we wow. just chatted and talked, and John yeah. and I talked about the north of England, and, you know, we talked about, you know, fish and chip shops in the north and... <laughs> it was just so lovely and and just normal conversation it, I mean in hindsight I think my god I could have asked him so many amazing questions but <laughs> right. there was something rather nice about not asking yeah. John Lennon about John Lennon you know it was, oh and I bet he loved it you know it was so He'd sweet so much know? rather talk about chip shops I'm sure yeah and the north of England you know and because he was yeah. Liverpool's only about an hour from where I was from so yeah Okay. It was really lovely, you know. Oh, that's cool. Okay, so we gotta we gotta close it out with a couple questions that I try to ask everybody. And number one, yeah. I want to know what your biggest regret might be. If there's some some decision you made or something, you know, you did something that if you hadn't done it or hadn't decided this thing, it changed the course in a way that you wish it hadn't. If there's anything like that, and then just what your best memory is. When you sit in your little village home and you're 70 years old and you just think, you made a cup of tea and you think, I can't believe this thing happened to me. What is that thing? Well, you know, I can pluck a lot of things out of the hat. I mean, and and this is off the top of my head. But Uh when I first wrote a song called Loving and Free in 1973 Mm -hmm. and I went to Elton's house to play it to him to see if it could be on the album he was producing and I was so nervous, I could hardly play a guitar, and I, I'd never really, I wasn't a great guitarist or anything. Uh-huh. And he loved the song, and we went into the studio, and I heard all these amazing musicians play my first song. And it just sounded amazing, and that was, oh, I'll yeah. never forget that. That's got to be that. amazing. Wow. Yeah. The song's called Loving and Free, guys. It's a really pretty song, you know. 
And the other, and I guess the worst. I mean, I, I don't. I'm, I'm not. I'm a bit, you know, no regrets sort of person. But I do. I did do. I got persuaded into doing a reality TV show here about three years ago called MasterChef. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. And I don't yeah. cook. And my friend, who's a really good cook, said, "What are you doing?" And I said, "I don't know. I just got talked into it by an agent, you know." And it was so embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't go. think I'd, uh, I, uh, I love to be avoided at all costs. Oh, sure. Sure. But you know what? It's probably on YouTube because, oh, don't. yeah, because the singer, I love the singer mid year and I think he was on that show or some other celebrity cooking show. And I watched his episode on YouTube one day. So mm. unfortunately I'm going to have to go watch your episode. Oh, don't. Oh, we'll see if it's there. <laughs> all right. Kiki, I've been a fan for a while, and I'm so grateful that you talked to me. I had a feeling you would have some interesting stories, and you do. And I just wanted to remind people that there was so much. Those of us younger younger folks in the States, there was so much more to Kiki D than this one song that you think you know. And so I'm so grateful you talked to me. That was lovely. There you have it, Kiki D. I didn't know that story, did you? I'm so flattered that she told it to me. She said herself she doesn't do this kind of thing very often. What a huge honor. She's such a sweet lady. By the way, I tried to find that cooking show on YouTube. It's not there. I wonder if her people are like Prince. If they're like out there, you know, policing the internet. And every, th- every time that gets uploaded, they just immediately rip it right back down. <laughs> I hope not. I'd love to see that sometime. Uh, I want to close it out with one of my favorite Kiki songs. This one's called Standing Room Only, and it's from her 1977 self-titled album. She's always great, but I especially like when she's really funky and upbeat and dancey. That's the Kiki I like the best. So a teaser for next week. I'm not 100% sure, once again, what I'm going to do next week. I can't tell you that a bonus episode is likely coming out in a couple of days. I have a couple interviews that are on the shorter side. They don't really work as full-fledged deep hustle episodes so we'll probably put those out as bonuses and there should be one coming in the in uh later this week if we do next week's guest uh i recently posted on facebook that i had some interviews that i and i wasn't sure what order i was going to put them out in one of them was with a more obscure band i think that's who we're going to go with next week i can tell you it leans a little bit in the punk pool and i realize i love punk and i don't know why i don't have more punk on here that is entirely on me So we're going to rectify that next week, most likely. So tune in for that. Anyway, huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man. Love you, buddy. Thanks for doing this with me. Also, the business, you can find us on Facebook and like our page. You can send me a message on there if you want. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Easiest thing is to go into iTunes or whatever and just subscribe. You'll get our episodes every Tuesday. That should do it. We will see you next week. Actually, we'll see you with a bonus episode in a few days. Bye, everybody. Bye.